Welcome to the Legally Sound Smart Business Show, your weekly look at legal news and questions in the business world. Here are your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Stahl. All right, welcome to episode number 24 of Legally Sound Smart Business. This is Nasser Pasha. And this is Matt Staub. Nice formal introduction that time. Yeah. But uh, we're ready to go. Things feel right again. It was thrown off the last couple episodes, so. Well, that was the purpose. (laughs) It's good to be back. All right, well, let's get into this first story for this week. And this was a really big one. It's something we've been waiting on. Huge news. Maybe not necessarily we, but a lot of people have been waiting on for the IRS to come down to decide what they're going to do, not only with Bitcoin, that gets a lot of the press, but just virtual currency in general. I think it turned out as what a lot of people that are familiar with Bitcoin thought was going to happen, that they ruled that it's going to be, oh, first things first, they ruled that it's not currency, it's property. So any gains on it are actually going to be capital gains. So like I said, this is what people thought was going to happen, but it's still kind of weird. And there's a lot of little things in here that might shy people away from it, but there's also some positives as well. Well, I'd like to hear the positives because my first reaction was annoyance because the requirements to actually track this stuff is going to be kind of difficult. Our firm has dealt with Bitcoin in the past and we're dealing with it now. But to me, these new IRS rules are just going to be, it's going to be a lot harder to report. Because it's property, we have to track at the time that we receive the Bitcoin, how much it's worth. And then if we use it again to, let's say, buy a TV, then we have to track that new price that the Bitcoin is currently worth and then calculate capital gains and capital loss at that transaction. So I don't know, it just seems like a huge burden upon reporting. Yeah, and I definitely agree with that. And there's no doubt that it is going to be more burn. So, you know, there's an example where you get Bitcoin and you use it to go buy like a sandwich. And then technically you have to calculate <laughs> the potential capital gains or capital loss on that transaction. And so I guess in that sense, it's overly burdensome. But on the pro side, I was thinking it's not taxed at ordinary income. So that's definitely a plus. So I guess more so for investors. That's true. Or maybe if an employee gets paid with Bitcoin, I would think that they would be taxed at capital gains rates, like they're saying, and not ordinary income. And the capital gains rate is obviously lower than ordinary income. But then also, I think the proponents of Bitcoin are maybe upset about this because it's not considered a currency. And because it's considered almost an investment, people are going to see it that way and not going to be able to use it in the same way that a currency is supposed to be used and kind of goes against the entire purpose of the Bitcoin itself. Yeah. And overall, I'm definitely siding with it's more of a negative than a positive. I'm just trying to point out the one or two positives that are there, but we'll see. And the people I've spoken to that are in the in the Bitcoin world, I think they maybe are a little bit upset about it, but at the same time, they say that it's all the more reason to get in Bitcoin because the more you get into it, the stronger everyone becomes. It's a positive outlook, I guess, but maybe underneath, those people might be upset. And I don't think this one ruling is going to necessarily change how people approach it too much, right? Yeah. And like I said, it's not just Bitcoin. It's all virtual currencies, all digital currencies. And I, I like how I'm saying all digital currencies and it's not a currency, it's property. Yeah, exactly. All digital currencies considered as property. There's other agencies that have decided that's currency. So it's just weird, but IRS always does their own thing. That's why we love them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This isn't going to be the last we hear of stories of this nature. So next time something big comes up, we'll definitely discuss it. Another one of the few positives, it's good to at least have something to base decisions off of. And there is one more thing that I thought was pretty interesting, how it's not starting from whenever this decision, this week on moving forward, it's retroactive as well. And 
I like how the IRS came out and said, you know, you're still responsible for prior years and you still could be subject of a failure to pay penalty, even though we might give you some sort of exception. I was like, well, yeah, I hope you give an exception because there was no ruling up until a couple of days ago. So how is anyone supposed to, supposed to know. I guess they just want people to assume that they have to pay the most possible and then maybe they'll get a refund down the road. I just thought that was kind of ridiculous, but I guess that's how they operate. <laughs> it is. That's their MO. All right. Well, let's get into the first question here for this week. Do I have to put the LLC designation at the end of my business name on our sign, on a business card, when I talk to people? And this is unsurprisingly from an LLC uh, located in San Diego. (laughs) Well, first of all, every state has naming designations. And if you're a limited liability company or corporation, there are requirements to actually include the words LLC or limited liability company. And I think you can even include LTD, CO, or some kind of acronym like that for LLCs in California. Yeah. But he's asking something different, he or she. They're asking, okay, well, can I drop that basically when I actually advertise or do business and my business cards? And so the general rule is that unless you're using the exact name that's registered for your entity, you should file a DBA, a fictitious business name, also called an assumed business name in other states and jurisdictions. So if you're basically ABC LLC and you want to advertise on your business card or some sign ABC only, then you'll have to file a fictitious business name under that particular LLC. And that's the easy solution here is just file that DBA and then you can drop the LLC if you want. Some businesses like to keep that in there, maybe to show that they are a little bit more credible, I suppose, than just a normal sole prop. You're right. Especially if it's a smaller business, it does kind of differentiate yourself. Okay, well, this guy's a little bit serious because they've actually gone through the trouble of filing a legal entity. But I think more importantly, one of the risks of not putting that designation on there, that LLC or corp or incorporated designation in there, is that if an event that you are sued, then the person that's suing you, whether it's an attorney or not, is going to look up to see, okay, well, who is this entity? And if that entity doesn't have that designation, they're going to assume it's a DBA. So they're going to look to see if that DBA has been registered. And if they don't find it that way, then they could assume that that's a sole proprietorship and actually you lose your limited liability, the very purpose that you registered your actual entity. It is a risk. Like I said before, it's an easy fix. You go to the county building and, well, at least in San Diego, you go to the county building and fill out a piece of paper and that's that. It's like 30 bucks or whatever it is. So it's it's definitely worth the time and the small amount of money just to take care of that if you want to not put that LLC at the end of it. Yeah, and just to talk about business names for a second is, California doesn't have a state registration. They just register per county. Other states have a state and county registration, and some states only have a state. And then there are some states that I know of that don't have any kind of registration. And a lot of times also these registrations are combined with a trade name, trademark registration too. As you know, We're going to talk about trademarks in a second is that Each state has their trademark law as well, and sometimes these trade names and assumed name registries are used in conjunction with registering your state trademark. Well, let's not answer two questions at once here. We do have a question on (laughs) trademarks later. so Yeah, I'm just being prepared. I'm going to cut you off before you get too into it. So let's jump into the next story. This is another pretty interesting story. For me, this kind of came out of nowhere. I follow sports pretty heavily, and this just came up on the news one day, and I didn't even know what was going on. But There was a ruling that was done through some of the players at Northwestern, especially the quarterback from the team last year, I think. A ruling that came out that said that 
these football players on scholarship are in fact employees of the school and therefore entitled to hold an election on decide whether they want to unionize. Now they still have to vote to see whether they want to, but just having this option and being ruled that they're employees, this is going to have some pretty big effects in college sports. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this was, I believe, decided by the National Labor Board of the United States. They have a very limited scope of what jurisdiction they cover. It's a lot of federally related only, like Indian reservations and federal programs only and so forth, and specifically private schools, which Northwestern University is. So this ruling does not apply to other public schools, and NCAA was not a part of this. But think about the impact of calling a student-athlete an employee. That means that they're entitled to the same kinds of protections that that coveted title of employee is given to other employees around the country. That is the minimum wage, you have overtime rights, you have breaks rights, you have what if the football player gets injured? right? Workers' compensation law, these kind of things come into play. Now, if I understand correctly, too, this person that decided this is just one person. It's going to be appealed, but just the interpretation in itself is uh, very interesting. Yeah, and I think the injuries aspect of it was really huge for them because I was listening to the quarterback who was kind of the face of this whole thing, at least for now. I was listening to him in an interview, and he's, I didn't even know this was the case, you know, if you get injured and then once you leave the school, you know, they're not going to cover your injuries. So, you know, while you're playing for them, yeah, they're going to have their medical team work on you because you're on scholarship. They want you to play. But what if you get hurt in your senior year? What if you have some injury and it's lingering and then you re-aggravate it after your last season or what have you? It's not covered. So you're kind of left out in the cold in terms of those sort of medical issues. Now you can have your own coverage, obviously, but that's a pretty big issue. Yeah. And that's something I haven't actually thought about because I would assume that they would be covered after school, but I, I didn't realize that. Because if you think about it from an employer's perspective, we're all paying for workers' compensation insurance, right? If one of our employees gets injured on the job, then our premiums are going to increase. And so now, why should, this is just more of an advocate here and taking a stance, but why should a college or university wreak all these benefits from their student-athletes and not be required the same way that other employers are? Yeah, and this is getting into a bigger issue too. And I kind of dislike both sides because on one side you have the NCAA, which basically plays by its own rules. I don't know how they even get by with some of the things they do. And they just say, these are the rules. This is how it's going to be. You have to live by them. They make tons of money and seem to be very stingy. And then on the other side, you have all these players, particularly football and basketball. And I think this decision even was only limited to football and basketball. But you have all these players that complain, oh, we should get paid. You know, In this example, Northwestern, I don't know what their tuition is, but I'm sure it's pretty high. It's a private school. And they're getting full-ride scholarships, plus probably some sort of room and board and who knows what else, all the under-the-table payments that Kentucky basketball pays. I just need to take that shot there. but <laughs> That went over my head. I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> some people will get it. All these players are basically getting, you know, you can say that money, the free scholarship and all that room and board is essentially a salary in a sense, but you're getting a free education from, in some instances, a top, Northwestern's a very good private school in Chicago. It's it's a great education. You're getting it for free. So why do you need to be paid for that? I, this is getting a little bit off topic, but it's... Well, I think this is a classic discussion, but the more I hear about it, I think the trend is more going towards considering them employees, whether they're paid or not, whether they actually get the cash or not. 
The most troublesome, I, I think you pointed out, is that injury aspect. If they get injured, not only are they not going to be playing their sport after the university, but that may affect also their ability to get a job and so forth. And if they were in any other employer employee position, then those kind of injuries would be covered. Yeah, it's tough. And I go back and forth on all these sort of things. I typically end up siding with the players just because the NCAA is so corrupt and wow. makes so much money and doesn't seem to care about things. But Down with the NCAA. <laughs> this will definitely be interesting to see how this plays out because like i said i think it's narrowed to just football and basketball and it's only private universities right now but public universities might jump aboard who knows what's going to happen and like you said before too it's going to be appealed so who knows what the ultimate decision is going to be but this is a very very interesting decision that could have a huge effect on college sports yeah very good i'm gonna, interested to see what goes on i'll get into the next question here and this comes from san antonio there is a domain name I want to use for my business. It looks to be taken, but not used. What are my options to get it? Well, I don't know if this is legal advice or legal question necessarily, because you don't necessarily have a right to the domain name, even if your business is the same name. This may get into some trademark law and so forth, as far as whether you actually have rights to that name and whether or not they're infringing upon your trademark. That might be an issue. But otherwise, you really have no choice other than to try to bid on it or find another domain name is probably the best option to do that. There is a domain squatting theory, which you can pursue, and that's something that you can pursue in litigation. However, again, that you have to make sure that you've established your trademark rights into that name, and there's different requirements for that as well. And I think you took my answer. Oh. Covered all, all the things I was going to say. But yeah, it's those those are the options. I mean, the first option that you should go through is look at a different URL. Like There's probably other ones out there. You maybe have the absolutely perfect one, but there's always other options you can find that are just as good. So that's step number one. Look at that. Number two, I guess you can contact the person who owns it. And then if they're not using it, like in this instance, maybe you can go through the hoops and try to go the domain squatting route, but maybe it's not worth your time. I, I would just probably stay on step one and just find a different URL. Or a different, um, I guess, a top-level domain. I think that's what they call it. Yeah, we went over that too. Because like, now they have, they're coming up with all these new ones like dot .pizza. And and uh, I don't know. That's all I can think about right now, pizza. But uh, Can't see many people using that. But Well, I'm going to get one. Legally Sound Smart Business dot .pizza. <laughs> we probably should at this point. <laughs> 50% of the show. But I was going to talk about cyber squatting and domain squatting, also called. and thing is, too, is that even if pursuing that strategy, it's not cheap. I've had to go through that. We, we thought about doing it for one of our clients, but it just ended up being too expensive in litigation costs. And it just made more sense just to find an alternative business name. And especially now that the actual domain name has less of an effect on search engine optimization, from what I understand. And so before, maybe if you had keywords within your domain name, it made a bigger difference. But now I don't think that's as much. And having short domain names are important. But at the end of the day, I think there's so many alternatives that you can get. But that's another thing, though, is just to think about is that when you start have a business name, a lot of people do look, one of the first things they look at is, is my domain name available? 
But you have to also look at all the alternative versions of it and see what other, you have to do a pretty global search to make sure that the trade name is available on a national basis. You know, a lot of times when you may be thinking about starting in one particular location, one particular state, you should assume that you're going to expand. And the last thing you want is to change your name later after you've already been marketing it for a few years. Right. And that's kind of the reason I said just find a different option because it is pretty burdensome and it's really not worth the hassle. But to some people it is, I guess. I don't know. If you have the money to spend, why not? Let's get into the break here. I'm really excited to talk about what I have up for the break. What do you so have? It only took the second round of games for all the perfect brackets to be done with. So your prediction of two perfect brackets <laughs> fell very short. Well, I mean, they're not counting my bracket yet still, right? Well, you weren't in the story that basically after the first round of games... There was one guy who had a perfect bracket. He picked all 32 first round games right, but he didn't even, <laughs> he'd even enter the $1 billion contest. And people were, I guess people were sending him all these tweets. I don't know why. I guess they were upset at him. And <laughs> yeah. But I saw how he responded was such that it's not like he spent any special time to fill in his bracket either. It's not like he was very literal in his choices. I think he just filled it out just like anyone else. I don't think he expected to get that far. Yeah, this is an interesting topic. Let's say you're Warren Buffett and you have this $1 billion thing. If someone had a perfect bracket, game after game after game, at what point would you offer them a potential buyout? Oh, isn't this kind of like deal or no deal? Yeah. (laughs) Well, as I've learned the hard way and reading about statistically, I think even towards the very end, it's still a very low chance. So I don't know. It'd take a while. Yeah. Maybe the final four, I guess. Yeah, I think that's the point because was there 63 games at that point, you would have hit 60 for 60, which is pretty insane. But then you're still got to hit those last three. Yeah. But $1 billion is a lot of money. That's so true. Even a small buyout is still a huge chunk of money that most people don't ever see in their lifetimes. Yeah. Oh, well, we'll see if he does it again next year. And I heard you're actually doubling your prediction. You said four perfect brackets next year. Yeah, four perfect next year. <laughs> Uh, Give or take three. Okay. All right. Well, let's get into this next story here. Well, I would even mention that your hometown team, Dayton Flyers, have made it to the Elite Eight. So we're going to continue on with another Ohio-based story. And this deals with a company, E-Waste Systems, Inc. I think actually the company is Las Vegas-based, but the people that bought it are based out of Cincinnati. The buyer is being sued by the former owners whose assets it bought. And it looks like there's some issues with, there were some leases that were supposed to be paid off and some personal guarantees. I don't know how much detail you want to get into, but to me, I'm looking at this and thinking, was this an issue of improper research and due diligence or was this an issue of misrepresentation? I think due diligence. I think the buyer's attorney did not represent them well because, okay, first of all, a lease, it was either a lease on personal property or was it real estate property. But either way, this is something very easy to be found. And I think the issue was that they should have been properly assigned or the personal guarantees released at closing. You know, when you do an asset purchase of a business, one of the first things you look into is what leases and liabilities are left because you're not taking on the liabilities, but if you're purchasing land or if you're purchasing any kind of property, it may be attached to other things like liens and leases. And so those things usually need to be taken care of at closing. And there may be circumstances, maybe the landlord or the lessor does not want to assign the contract and so forth. And that's why part of the contingency of closing is usually getting those consents. And there may be some exceptions to that, but it seems strange to me as to why these kind of things were not taken care of at closing. 
And I think you hit the nail on the head there. That's a big red flag. But I just don't understand it. If you're acquiring these businesses or the, I guess the assets of the business, I would look things over as many times as possible. I just don't understand how these things can arise. That's why I was wondering if, you know, misrepresentation, that's a different story. They're claiming that it's a breach of contract, right? right? Because they're saying claiming it broke the contract they had with its part of the sale of the company's assets. That included e-waste agreement to pay off leases at the Blue Ash site in New York. So now my point is, is that they were relying upon the buyer to pay off these leases, right? But if they wanted that to happen, they should have had it done at closing, right? And maybe they didn't have the cash at that time. And and that's probably what's more likely happened is that it was supposed to be paid off over time and maybe that didn't occur. I don't even know the details. It doesn't really say, but the company that's getting sued is also in its own lawsuit against the former owners of another related company. And that company is also being okay. sued by a landlord for backed rent. It's it's this whole messy, messy ordeal. Yeah, there's probably more than what's going on in the surface here. So for people that are looking to acquire assets of a business, just try not to be wasteful. <laughs> E-wasteful. That was horrible. Yeah. But- We'll keep it in there. Well, I started it and then I thought so, I thought something <laughs> funny would come to mind and it didn't. And then I couldn't stop it. So it's, <laughs> it's become funny now. Okay. So you've done okay. your job. Well, before it gets too embarrassing for me, I'll get into the last question for this week. It comes from an IT solutions firm in San Jose. When can I place the trademark symbol next to our company name? And I'll let you take this because you were so anxious to answer it after the first question. <laughs> oh, darn it. Okay, well... The trademark symbol, the little TM, capital letters, also SM, which is service mark. You can put that on pretty much any time. What you're doing is you're establishing your common law trademark in the use of that mark. Note that there are some state regulations that do apply to that, but most states don't require any kind of registration for you to place that on there. So as soon as you start using that mark in the marketplace, you can use it. Now, whether you put that little R symbol with a circle around it, that's what's called a registered mark. That's something different. That's actually governed by the federal government and only can be applied to when you register your trademark. Sorry, I have to apologize. I wasn't listening to what you were saying, so I don't know what you just covered. (laughs) (laughs) This is our worst episode episode. ever. Um... (laughs) When we do best of, we'll do worst of as well. Yeah, that's a uh, perfect answer there. There's not much more I can add. It's pretty straightforward in terms of what you can and can't do. So I'm glad you didn't get into this before with the earlier question because this is already short enough as it is. We wouldn't have been able to even have an answer to this last question. That's true. And let's get into the last story for this week. We're coming back again to Candy Crush. This one's a little bit different. So they went on the New York Stock Exchange this week, and I looked yesterday. I think it was Wednesday or maybe it was Thursday. I don't remember, but it went under what they thought was going to go, which I don't know why they thought it was going to be so high because right now it's all based off of one game. I guess I should mention it's, uh, what is it, King? King is the name of the company and Candy Crush is the game. Right, that's what I'm saying. It's So King, oh, okay, yeah. so King and it's basically essentially just Candy Crush. But So a lot of people are going to make money off of this, you would think, but there's a story that came out this week about one investor who's not going to make money so he says, and it's because he was an early investor, he's been involved in some other successful companies, but it was all built on a carried interest. And so how that works is he basically left before any of his interests vested. And now he's just kind of out. And the firm he was with, who did the investment, they're going to make tons of money. And I forget the exact numbers of how much it's valued, but 
which is kind of a raw deal for this guy. And he doesn't really seem to care, but it's just unfortunate. Yeah, he doesn't seem to care. And he made it seem the reason he was leaving was because the owner or whoever he was working with was just focusing on an exit strategy and selling off, which, of course, an IPO is one of the best ways to do that. But we, we, you mentioned the vesting, right? That's a good way when you have founders that get together that gives them incentives to stay around. And it's unfortunate or fortunate, however this guy wants to look at it, that he didn't get the interest that he was looking for. And I don't know if he lost all of his interest or still has some of it. Not sure. Yeah, it might be a little bit, but yeah, it's just much less than <laughs> what he could have got because we're talking in the billions now for what they're supposedly valued at. But yeah, if that's what he wants to do, he made the choice and he, like I said, he doesn't seem to really care about it. He's, he's like, I just wanted to get out and do something else. So to him, I guess it's a non-story to everyone else who, you know, the same people that are money hungry over the $1 billion bracket, they're the ones that probably care. Well, what I don't get about this whole IPO in general is that, okay, King created a successful game Candy Crush that I still have never played, but I know a lot of people do. But how do you replicate the success of that game? I don't think you can. And to go public like that, it almost assumes that you're saying that you can do that. They've had one hit and Candy Crush is going to get old just like every other video game. And is Candy Crush 2 or I don't know if that's even possible or whatever, but when their next game, is it going to be as good? It's very unlikely. Yeah, I'm trying to look right now what their real time. I think because it started at 19, I believe, and now it's down it's 18.43. And I think they were hoping to get up in the 21, 22 range. But yeah, it's all built on one game and the game's going to become unpopular at some point. You're taking a big risk, I guess, with jumping on that company. And I think there was a similar one. Was it Zanga? Yeah. They have Words of Friends and some other games. But they have other games. No, they have a few, right? Uh, I thought... That's a difference. No, Farmville, right? Did they do Farmville? I think so. And if they did Words for Friends, I actually played. But that's pretty good. They have multiple successes there. Yeah, and that's the difference is they at least have proven something else. But I think the biggest story to come out of this is the fact that I also play Words of Friends and we don't play each other. So you're basically saying that we're not friends. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Honestly, I always win everyone who I play. Oh, wow. I literally stop playing. And I'd feel oh. bad too because my family would stop playing with me and I'd be like, it's no fun, et cetera, et cetera. I would also cheat, but I think there's a way to cheat. That's not fun. <laughs> exactly. No. Actually, I haven't played in, in years, So, but I used to play when it, when it got popular. So I just looked this up too. I guess the initial public offering price was 2250 so it's fallen a good amount then oh wow okay maybe it was at 19 yesterday when i looked maybe that's what it was but that's pretty significant facebook i'm trying to think what facebook did it went up it was really fluctuating and went down for a while now it's back up you're exactly right it went down for a little bit but i think it recovered we'll see how this plays out and we like to travel back to other similar stories we've done in the past so if something unique pops up with this i'm sure we'll bring it up again definitely it seems like we've covered candy crush before and I, I wanted to cover Uber again, but we've done that like three or four times already. <laughs> yeah, take a break of that for a while. Well, they just got sued in Seattle by the taxi commission. So just interesting law coming out of that. But we'll just skip it, I guess, this week. <laughs> All right, guys. So if you have any more questions for us, send it in to ask at com. If you're done asking questions, then that's fine. We'll just won't answer any more questions from now on. And of course, you can also go to LegallySoundSmartBusiness.com to ask your questions as well. Let's see. This is episode 24. We're coming to a quarter on our next episode. So 
pretty big time for us. Big time. We're going to have a huge celebration next time. Yeah. We already did a best of after 20 episodes. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, we'll do a best of for 25. That's yeah. every five. and That'll be good. After 30, we're just going to be replaying old episodes and <laughs> just record different intros. So. <laughs> oh, that's great. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. Yeah, and keep us sound and keep us smart. This has been the Legally Sound Smart Business Show with your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Stop. The Legally Sound Smart Business Show is your weekly look at legal news and questions in the business world. Legally Sound Smart Business is a podcast that is intended but not promised or guaranteed to be current, complete, or up-to-date, and should in no way be taken as an indication of future results. No attorney-client relationship is created by listening or submitting questions to the podcast. The podcast does not constitute legal advice, but rather is offered only for general informational and educational purposes. You should not act or rely on any information in the podcast without first seeking the advice of an attorney. The opinions expressed in the podcast reflect the views of those individuals and do not necessarily represent the views of any other individual or business. For more information about the Legally Sound Smart Business Show, visit LegallySoundSmartBusiness.com. And I forgot there's one more thing that I thought of. I'll be right back. Sorry, okay. my air conditioning cut out. Okay, uh, so I'm just having mic problems all day. That's what, okay, um, what was I gonna say? One investor who's not making money because of um, I had the article. Sorry, I linked the wrong article in here, and now I'm. <laughs> I was just gonna say this is the wrong article. All right, federal government and only can be applied to when you register your trademark. Sorry, I have to apologize. I wasn't listening to what you were saying, so I don't know what you just covered. <laughs> <laughs> wow this is a great episode this is our worst episode ever uh, <laughs> when we do best of um we'll do worst <laughs> of as well so you said you can use a the tm or sm symbol before federal registration did you say that and then can you use you can't use the r symbol until you've actually registered with the uspto yep you got it you already say that yeah i already said that okay <laughs> Oh, wow. All right, so three, two, one.